study of Revelation, we've come to a little bit of a mini-series found within Revelation known as Church History. So far, we've covered two eras, two periods from Revelation chapter 2 that talk about church history. What was the first one? All right. I'm quitting. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> what book are we in? <laughs> Ephesus. It was the first church period. It was the time of the disciples of the apostles. It was their descendants. It was the people that they led to saving faith in Christ. And then they took what they were told to do through discipleship and they carried it on to the next generation. And what was the main thing we learned? How did Satan seek to attack that church? Age. There was, if you could sum it up in one word, what would it be? Did anybody remember from your study sheet? Although if you couldn't even remember the name, maybe you won't even remember the method that Satan used to attack. It starts with an H. Heresy. Yes. Thank you. He started getting them that are within the church solid, saved human beings who believe the Word of God and he started getting them to use phrases and words and concept not found in the Bible at all. And over time, this began to build, and you have doctrines that are formed out of this whole thing. And again, we talked about that man from Alexandria, Egypt, who was the headmaster of this school, where he had all of his false doctrine that he propagated, wrote 6,000 volumes of this stuff, and started discipling his own demonic disciples into believing this stuff. What was his name again? Origin. Origin. That's right. He is the origin of false doctrine in the church age. And really, like I said already, there's nothing new under the sun. Everything that he talked on during the 200 AD time frame, we can see it in the Old Testament. Ethan, a question. Yeah, so was Origin, like when he had his school in Alexandria, was that before the library was sacked and burned? That was after, actually. Ooh, good thinking. Do you remember who uh, gifted the library? wasn't one of the emperors. It was Mark Antony to Cleopatra. Do you know where they got it from? Pergamos! Which just so happens to be the church period we are studying tonight. Fun little fact. I actually mentioned that in the adults, but I was going to skip it tonight. But you went ahead and bring it up. Brought it up. Uh, actually, no. Now I have to check to see when, he actually, when it actually got sacked. They took it from Pergamos and they, get, and they brought it into Alexandria, Egypt. But when it was actually burnt down, I'll have to double check that. Now you threw me all, all sorts of off. Yeah, Going focused. back to our review. What was that? Stay focused. Yeah. Going back to our review. The next period we covered last week was Smyrna. And what was Satan's method to try to distract that church to try to get them down? Persecution. Persecution. And mark it down. If Satan can't get you seduced to believing false doctrine that is out there, like many churches or many pastors or many priests will purport, if he can't seduce you into heresy, he will try to absolutely crush you and make your life as bitter as possible, as we saw in the case of many of those Christians who lived during that time last week. Tonight, we're going to see Satan go back to an old method, which is... A new method, but he does it in a new way. But really, it's an old method. It's something that he's done ever since the garden. And we're going to see that with tonight with Pergamos. But something I wanted to make mention on before we leave uh, Smyrna. You know, I kind of touched on this Sunday, and I meant to mention it last week. But did it dawn on any of you guys just how fascinating it is that 
Everything we looked at last week, all of the stories of all of the martyrs, of all the people who were just bitterly crushed, who went through atrocious things, did it dawn on anybody, how on earth is Christianity still around? By all accounts and purposes, given what was going on, given the accounts of just, what, 10 people? If not 15 people, 15 stories we looked at? Logically speaking, Christianity should not exist today. There was one particular story I left out where, and this happened, and actually I kind of have a, a glimpse of it up here. This is a Colosseum, especially in Rome, where it was big. And you would have people, it was a spectator sport, where they would literally have Christians, but of course the political rhetoric of the day is these were the heretics. They would have them up and they would either be crucified or they would be tied to a, a pyre and they would be set to flames. And in some certain cases, they would keep lions and bears in the little basement of the Colosseum and they would starve these animals all day. And in some cases, brothers and sisters in Christ who believe the exact same things you and I believe today, they would be eaten alive by these animals. But every now and then, there would be a story, and there's one that even in Fox's Book of Martyrs that's documented in a coliseum where you have all of these eyes on it. And after these animals were starved all day long, the lions and the bears would come out, they'd go up to the Christians who were tied to a post, dead meat, and they wouldn't touch them. Starved animals. They would smell the Christians, and they wouldn't touch them. Imagine what that does in the minds of the spectators. Imagine what it did in the minds of the spectators when as someone is burning alive, they're taking their hands and they're washing their hands in the flames as if to warm themselves in the fire, knowing that that fire is bringing them into glory, into the presence of their king. The fire didn't bother them. The torment didn't touch them. Imagine what that does to the onlookers. Why did Christianity not cease to exist after 325 AD? Because through the testimony of those faithful martyrs, people in the crowds would look and see there's something different about these people. I want what they have. And I'm going to seek it out. Even if it means that's me up there on that post one day. Do people look at you and do they see something different about you? And the thing that has been convicting of me as of late, I've shared with you guys before, you know, I, when I was in high school, I had this very militant mindset of that's my land. I am going to win it for Christ. If I only get one convert or zero converts, as long as I'm living every single day for him, doing what he's asked me to do, taking my Bible to school and being faithful in every opportunity he gives me, then so be it. I'm going to do it. That's my land. I'm not going to fail here. Something changed in college where I started to see that, oh, these professors don't really care about participation points anymore. They're not asking for someone to share their opinion on a matter or a subject. And in fact, most of the college professors, they were so cocky and arrogant, it was just their show. They would just talk the entire time through lecture. They didn't care to hear what you had to say. I'm like, okay, I'll reach out to people in the hallways. Well, when you go to college, sometimes you'll find that people are either dying to go to their next class or they're dying to go to work or they're just dying to get back to their dorm rooms or go home. So there goes that. 
And I started to get really, really downcast that, man, it's not like high school. The opportunities were so easy in high school. They had to be there. It was a prison system. And I was the warden. I wasn't locked in there with them. They were locked in there with me. They couldn't go anywhere. But college is a different story. And over time, instead of me trying to think, how can I adapt to this, this new environment? How can I be creative? I started to get complacent. I didn't have that same desire and that same heartfelt passion to reach out to people, to let it be known to others that there was something different about me. That time in college carries over to the workplace. Where, yeah, people will know, okay, he's a Christian. In fact, even just this past week, there was a testimony with somebody in our church who knows somebody I work with where they realized, oh, yeah, they, we know that Corey doesn't drink. So we figured that you don't drink either, and it was this, this kind of a neat open door. But to know that there's something different, that I'm set apart, to know that I am not just a Christian who goes to church on Sundays, but there's something different about me. Like this. So when people that you go to school with, your family members, your friends who don't know Christ, when they see you, do they just see, oh, he's a Christian, she's a Christian, or do they see, man, there is something different about him or her, and I need to know what it is. Man, people are watching you. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 2 says that your life, you are a living epistle, a letter. The epistles that Paul wrote, the New Testament. Your life is a letter. Your life speaks. What does it say? We saw what it said for those guys last week. Now tonight, as we enter Pergamos part 3, go ahead and turn over to Revelation chapter 2. This really is a watershed moment. There is so much that happens in history at this time that really I kind of felt bad the last two weeks where it's like, man, there's not really that's, that's known and, and what little bit has carried over into modern day, modern history. It's very, very sparse, but man, there is no denying the historical things we're going to see here tonight. No denying it. Pergamos, Revelation chapter 2. Let's see, how many verses is that? Is that six? I need six volunteers. Sam, start verse 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, Caleb, and I'll do 17. All right, go ahead, Sam. Follow along as we read. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. Mm -hmm. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seed is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith. Even in those days where an antipass was my faithful martyr, who was sent among you where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them, that hold the doctrines of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to comfort fornication. Commit. Commit fornication. And hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which they Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Let's pray one last time. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for preserving the words of this book here tonight so we can read them. I pray we would be blessed as we read it, believe it, and do it. In Jesus' name, amen. On your outline.
Pergamos, again, names matter. The definitions of name mean something. Pergamos literally means much marriage. Much marriage. Not just married. Not married to one spouse. No, no, no. Much, much marriage. Uh, hold your place here. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. You might want to write this down and add this to your notes. We've been talking about this on Sunday, and it continues to blow my mind how these two uh, studies, as diametrically opposed as they appear on paper, are really starting to come together. But we talked about the idea that we have a husband, Jesus Christ, and we are called to be not just a bride, not just a woman as the church, but what kind of a woman? If you remember from Sunday, virtuous. We are to have virtue. We are to be His bride. Look at verse 1. Would to God you could bear with me a little my folly, and indeed bear with me. In other words, perk up, because what I'm about to tell you is very important, Paul says. For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy. I want to protect you. Why? For I have espoused you to how many husbands? One husband. Why? That I may present you, the church, the bride of Christ, as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his, what's that word? So your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Someone remind me, what is the only adjective that is used to describe the serpent in Genesis chapter 3? Subtle. subtle. He was the most subtle beast in the field. He was sly. He was crafty. In other words, it wasn't easy to notice and spot what it was he was doing. I fear... Through, just as he beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should also be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ, the simplicity of his word. And check out verse 4. How would Satan corrupt the minds of the church? For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if he receive another spirit, which ye have not received, or another gospel which ye have not accepted, he might well bear with them. In other words, it's just the blind leading the blind into a ditch, as the book of Matthew says. And turn back over to Revelation chapter 2. Christ is our husband. We are his bride. Paul's desire was to present the church, this church that he cared over as a, as a kind of a discipler. He helped correct the church when they were going completely wayward. And his heart's desire was that they would be pure, that they would be single focused on their husband because they were espoused to only one husband, not many or much husbands. So if this church in Pergamos is named much marriage. You think this is going to go good or bad tonight? And possibly next week. Probably not good. Much marriage. Second bullet point on your outline. This is the era when the pagan Roman Empire 
is united, you could even say married, with Christianity. And tonight, we're going to see, in Ephesus, Satan's attack method was heresy. In Smyrna, it was persecution. Tonight, his attack method for this church period from 325 A.D. to 500 A.D. was compromise. Compromise. Settling for that which is okay when God wants to give you the very best. You know how Satan is subtle? He will get you to be convinced that it's okay to settle for something that's eh, instead of the very best that God has for you. He'll get us to be convinced that the things that are just good and mediocre and okay, or mediocrity, as Pastor Tom was talking about this past Sunday, he'll get us to be convinced that mediocrity is the height and the peak of Christian service. We'll see how tonight and possibly next week. Well, here's how he kind of did this in these little three check marks here. He decided to rescue them, rescue Christians from the cruel public pressure and persecution and offer Christianity liberty. He, pre he basically decides, you know what? I kept persecuting and crushing the church for these last 300 years and they keep growing. As much as I try to squelch Christianity, as much as I try to choke it out and try to stamp it and get it out, the church continues to grow somehow. Satan decides, if I can't beat him, I'll join him. And if you guys remember, I, I kind of mentioned this in the, in the introduction, and this is where it's very, very key to understand this. For, I don't know if any of you guys love history or if you're getting into history books or love your history class, but this is where you need to start looking at history through the eyes of the Bible. Because remember, God said in Isaiah, he's going to give us history in advance. This is where most historians and most church historians miss out because they don't look at history through the lens of the Bible. And so... Because God is working to establish His plan and purposes for the entire universe, the world, and your life, as we looked at, Satan is also working to counter, counterfeit, and confound that very same work of God because historians won't look at history through that lens where they won't look to see how Satan's trying to counter God's work. Historians end up calling the work of God heresy, and they end up calling the true, genuine heretics Christians. That's why there's such a confusion. That's why if you look at your history books, you have to funnel everything through. What does the Bible say? What year did this take place in my history book? Oh, okay. Let me see what the Bible has to say about that for that particular time. Okay, so they're calling that the work of God. They're saying that that is God's doing. That it was okay for God to kill Christians or kill heretics. Well, I wonder what those heretics believed. Maybe I should do some digging of my own and see what did these so-called heretics actually believe? And that's why most history books, they get it wrong. Because they're not looking at history through the lens of the Bible. Their vision is skewed. And they end up calling what is actually pagan and heretical Christian and vice versa. And so that's why you start seeing here a little bit of a change, a shift of the public pressure and persecution to now offer Christians liberty. And we'll see how long that lasts next week.
or possibly two weeks from now. Second check mark. What'd you say, Andy? You said it was like a 1619 project. <laughs> oh, yeah. Critical race theory. Yep. Again, nothing new under the sun. Second check mark. He decided to propagate the gospel through compromise and sometimes by force. Again, to compromise means to you kind of come to a mutual agreement. Instead of standing strong on what you believe, instead of standing firm on what you believe to be true based upon the Word of God, it's now giving in in order to have peace, in order to have unity. I'll give in. That's compromise. And lastly, he decided to mix pagan Rome with Christian Rome, and everyone will have peace. And I had to skip over a couple weeks ago for the sake of time, but write down Isaiah 5, I believe it's verses 20 and 21. The Bible talks about, uh, you know, uh, oh goodness, I'm going to draw a blank. I think that's the verse where it talks about, they say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And they'll trade the bitter for the sweet. Bitter, Smyrna. People will actually give away the sweetness of the Word of God, the honey and the milk of the Word of God, for just a little bit of peace. Hey, at least we're not on the run for our lives anymore, right, fellas? No. Because there's so much more that's being compromised. All right. So the commendation. What does Christ actually say is commendable about this church? Look again at verse 13. He says, I know thy works, where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And even so, thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith. Even in those days where Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. Interesting side note, if you guys are taking notes, you want to know what Antipas means? Against the fathers. If you recall, during our time in Ephesus, we started learning about the history, the, 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 what's the phrase? There's a big $10 word for it. Um, oh, the anti-Nicene church fathers, uh, or the post-Nicene church fathers, that'll make more sense tonight. But they're known as the church fathers. We looked at some of them a couple weeks ago. This guy was against the fathers. He was against anything that was called father in a religious context. Hmm. We'll see that happening tonight. He held fast their name. You guys remember last week when it said that they which... Look at verse 9, actually. Talking about Smyrna, he says, I know thy works of tribulation and poverty, and I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of where? Hmm. You see, the devil said he was going to cast some into prison. Remind me again, who was actually casting people into prison from last week's notes? The city of... Or the country of? Thank you. Rome. And he equates Rome with Satan here. Now he's talking about Satan having a seat where he can sit down and actually speak ex cathedra from the chair. God speaking from the chair. Those of you who may have a religious background, you may know what that is. More on that later. Here we see Rome is still causing issues. They're setting up a chair, and in the midst of evil, check it out again in verse 13. Even where Satan's seat is, they held fast their name. Some of you guys go to your schools, and maybe you feel like you're the only one there. Maybe you're the actual only one in your class, surrounded by all of this nonsense that's going on in the world. 
where we can't even have a Supreme Court justice nominee give a clear definition of what a woman is, you might be seeing this in your classrooms. You're wondering, I am completely all alone. I am in the midst of Satan's seat. Even so, hold fast and don't deny his name. Hold fast his name and don't deny the faith. Even in the midst of evil, you guys can still choose to do what is right. Every time. Those of you guys who work, especially if you're working with lost people, especially if it's different age groups where you know people can get, they're a little bit more flippant with what they can get away with and try to get you involved in. Stand strong, don't deny his faith, and hold fast his name. Do the right thing. What does Psalm 23 talk us about? Yea, though I walk through the valley of thee, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thou preparest a table in the midst of mine who? Enemies. Oh, I love it. All of you guys, you are the few against many in your schools, in your workplace, and in some of your homes. You are the few against many. But if you have this book, you hold fast to his name, you don't deny the faith, you are in charge, you are in control, you are the authority. You have a table in the midst of your enemies. You can just sit and feast. Because he's going to provide open doors, an open door of utterance for you to get to share your faith with those lost people. So stand strong and don't compromise. Don't give in to this world system. Don't give in to what they are wanting to get you to do, whether it be sinful or just a different change of opinion. That's the commendation. That's what they did right for a time. And in certain circumstances throughout this period, there were only a few of them that did. But now we get to the condemnation. And we already saw here that in the first bullet point, they dwelt where Satan's seat is, and that was where? We just said it. What country? Rome. Rome, to fill in your blank. They dwelt there. They camped out there. Instead of propagating the gospel, instead of telling their neighbors and planting churches elsewhere, they decided, let's just camp out here and see what could possibly go wrong. Second bullet point. They held the doctrine of Balaam. Anybody tell me the story of Balaam? Let's go ahead and turn over to Numbers 25. Hold your plate. Actually, before you turn over there, let's read what he has to say here in verse 14. I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So what's going on with this doctrine of Balaam as it pertains to 325 to 500 AD? There are things being eaten that have been sacrificed to idols, and there's a lot of fornication going on. Spiritual fornication against God and physical fornication against God. But how did this happen? Well, he gives us a beautiful Old Testament picture in the book of Numbers. Turn over to chapter 25, holding your place in Revelation. If you wanted to read more, you can actually start in, uh, I think it's chapter 22, and read all the way up. What was interesting is this guy, uh, Balaam, 
it's not really clear whether or not he's on God's side or not. It kind of sounds as though he's a priest, that he's one of God's people, one of the Israelites, but it never really gives a clear delineation as to which side he stands on. And you have this guy, Balak, who is a part of the enemy nations of Israel. And he goes to Balaam and he says, hey, curse Israel for me. Curse God's people. I want them to stop spreading. I want them to stop conquering all this land. Curse them for me. And Balaam, as many times as he tries, he can't. This is where you get the talking donkey. Balaam's riding, and then all of a sudden he sees this mighty warrior in the way with a flaming sword standing, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, and the donkey runs right into a brick wall to try to avoid him because of the holiness of God. And as many times as Balaam tried to get himself to curse the nation of Israel, God's people, God wouldn't let him do it. So Balaam had to compromise. He had to think of a way... If he couldn't curse the nation of Israel for monetary gain that Balak was going to pay him, maybe I can give counsel to Israel themselves and they can get God to curse them for Balak. Hmm. And so here's what he got him to do. Look at verse 1. Can I get a reader for verses? Now let's do 1 to 3. Kendall. And it came to Jordan with the daughters of Moab, and they called the people unto the sacrifices of their gods, and the people did eat and bowed down to their gods. And Israel joined himself unto Bel Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And Israel joined himself unto Baal Peor. Baal, the enemy of God, the sun god. And they did eat things sacrificed unto gods, and they committed Whoredom with the daughters of Moab. Hmm. They compromised. They knew what the Levitical law said, and they decided to go against it. They decided to do what they wanted to do. And they joined themselves. They were united. They were married together. Much marriage going on if you kept reading that story in Numbers 25. Much marriage happening, much uniting together with the enemies of God to compromise on what God wanted them to do to stay pure. Sound familiar? It's what God's describing here, what the Christians did. And we'll see how, historically speaking, in a little bit. Flip back to Revelation chapter 2. Not only that... There's an interesting word that pops back up in verse 15. We've seen this word before. Where did we see this word Nicolaitan show up? Ephesus. Ephesus. Thou hast there the deeds of the Nicolaitans. You won't, you won't keep them there, it said. Ephesus was being commended because, uh-uh, I'm not letting them keep this false doctrine, this Levitical priest class where they're lording over God's people, I'm not going to allow them to stay there. He commended Ephesus because they kicked those guys out. They wouldn't tolerate what they had to say. Look what he says in verse 15, though. This isn't a commendation anymore. Instead, it is a condemnation. So hast thou also them that hold the... What is that next word? 
doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. He reminds them, I hate this doctrine. I hate these deeds. But did you guys catch it? It's no longer the deeds of the Nicolaitans. It's no longer the works of a priest class lording over the people, telling them what God's Word says, and saying, hey, you know, I went to this seminary school in Alexandria, Egypt. I know what the Hebrew and the Greek originally say. I studied it out originally. Uh, do you happen to know Hebrew and Greek? Oh, you don't? Oh, well, see, I do. And after all, I'm the man of God. I am the, the royal priest of God. And so you should just listen to everything I have to say because, after all, you didn't go to the same school I went to. Those deeds were not tolerated by Ephesus. But when deeds aren't dealt with, when there's no repentance there, it eventually becomes a way of life. It eventually becomes a teaching a doctrine that has now crept into the church. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Mark it down. If there are deeds that you're involved in, if you don't put a stop to them, if you don't repent, it's going to become a way of life. It's going to become a way of thinking. It's going to become something that you bring into the church. And just as we saw in Numbers 25, it'll cause your brothers and sisters to go down with you. So, that's what the text says. Let's see how this worked itself out in what is a watershed moment in church history where things forever changed and they've not been the same ever since. Have a pen ready, mark some things down, check it out later. Significant events that happened during this time period, 325 to 500 A.D. We have a man come on the scene who's wanting to be the 11th emperor of Rome, and his name is... Constantine. Who's heard of that name before? Well, what you may not know is that as he was going to fight against the Lucinius, his name was, they were going to have this battle. It's called the Battle of Milvian Bridge. As they were going to fight to see who was going to be the next emperor of Rome, who was going to be the next leader of Rome, as they went to go fight, all of a sudden, Constantine looks up in the sky and behold, he sees an angel of God. This is not the book of Acts. This is not the Old Testament, mind you. This is 325 years after Christ came on the scene. And as he's looking up, he sees this angel, and he sees this sign that shows up in the sky that looks an awful lot like this. And it's Greek lettering, and next to this symbol, it says, In hoc vinces sino. In other words, in this sign, thou shalt conquer. Constantine digs that sign, paints it on all of his, the shields of his men, and he goes out and he wins this battle, the Battle of Milvian Bridge in 313 AD. As a result of this victory, and the fact that he saw this angel up in the sky... And he had this sign, which back then it was a pagan sign of a crucifix, by the way. Because of this experience, Constantine now believes himself to be a Christian. Now, based upon what you know of the Word of God, based upon what you know of the Gospel, based upon what you know of the salvation, based upon the Word of God, 
Is that a genuine salvation conversion? No. That is not Romans 10.13. That is not Romans 10.9 and 10. That is not him seeing himself as a sinner in need of a Savior. That's him having an emotional, out-of-this-world, out-of-this-body experience and accrediting that as something that forever changed his life. Happens all the time. Happens in churches all the time. The only thing is, 2 Peter chapter 1, flip on over there, talks very, very clearly about this. Peter himself was an eyewitness to something incredible, and he details it for us here in 2 Peter chapter 1. Look at verse Look at verse 17. Talking about Christ, he says he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Does that sound familiar? Where was that at? Oh, it was the baptism of Christ. But this specifically, he's talking about the transfiguration. Matthew chapter 17, where Peter, James, and John are taken up to the mount, and Jesus Christ reveals all of his glory to these three men, where he reveals, I'm not just an ordinary man, I'm God in human flesh. And they hear this audible voice of God the Father, and they're trembling, they're like, Lord, it's good you brought us up here. And there's Moses and there's, there's Elijah. And they're like, let's camp out here. Let's have this, this, this tabernacle built for all of you guys. And let's just stay here. That's the event he's talking about. Now, he saw it with his eyes. He heard it with his ears. Let's keep reading what he has to say. This voice, verse 18, which came from heaven, we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed. What's this short word? Jump down to verse 20. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the what? Scripture is of any private interpretation. Right here, Peter is saying, I had this firsthand experience. I saw with my eyes and I heard with my ears the actual voice and the person of God himself. But guess what? This book... This is more sure than even that experience. What we're learning here from Peter is that no matter what experience we go through, whether it be something we think we see, something we think we hear, it better match up with what this book says. It better line up with what the Word of God says. If it doesn't, then it's not of God. That's what he's telling us here. So based upon this, Constantine is not genuinely saved. But he's going around saying that he is. And he starts making Rome the official state of Christianity. So after this, he wins the battle, paints a symbol on all of his helmets, his shields, and he goes forth. Now, that he's the emperor, you have point number two, the Edict of Milan. It's also known as the Edict of Toleration. Hmm. Seem to be hearing that word thrown around a lot. He enacts this edict 
this edict of toleration. And here's what it basically grants. It granted Christians total religious freedom. Awesome. So they can worship unmolested by the government. Awesome. That's good. Uh, church property confiscated was to be returned. That's another plus. Okay. Uh, pagan temples, particularly offensive to Christians, were to be destroyed. Hold up. Who's going to decide what's offensive and not? I'm starting to have a little issue with this edict now. Because what's offensive to somebody might not be for somebody else. Sound familiar? Is this not this day and age? Oh, that offends me. Take that flag down. Oh, that statue offends me. Take it down. Who's deciding this? Next point. Christian clergy were exempted from taxation and soon to be paid by the state instead of by God. How he designed it to be. We don't have time to look at it, but write down Matthew 22. Actually, yeah, we're not going to get done with the whole study sheet. Write down Matthew 22 and turn over there. We'll finish the second half later. So good, it gives us more time to look at some of these passages. Hey, these are core, key, doctrinal things that we need to understand, especially as it pertains to this, because there are many Christians who are blinded to the reality of what the Bible actually says about these things, and you'll see how in just a second. Did I say Matthew 23? 22, thank you. Look at verse 15. I need a reader for 15 to 17. Sam, and I'm a reader from 18 to 22. No, Sam. Ethan. Follow along. Pay attention. Then went the Pharisees and took counsel of how they might entangle them in his talk. And they sent out unto him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Master, we know that thou art true, and teachest the way of God in truth. Neither carest thou for any man, for thou regardest not the person of man. Tell us, therefore, what thinkest thou? Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar? Now, again, he started off in verse 15. Were these guys coming to actually get an answer from Christ here? No. They were coming to do what, according to verse 15? Entangle him. Trip him up. So they can prove that he's a liar or a lunatic. Which is a reminder. Come out tomorrow for our area outreach study. Go ahead, Ethan, verse 18. But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why tempt ye me, ye hypocrites? Show me the tribute money. And they brought unto him a penny. And he saith unto them, Whose is this image and subscription? They say unto him, Caesar's. Then saith he unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things which are God's. When they had heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. Mark it down. From this passage, you know what we learn? The separation of church and state is a biblical doctrine. The problem is, nobody today knows how to properly define separation of church and state. The common rhetoric that's used today is that if anybody goes into a courthouse and has a Ten Commandments displayed, or if anybody goes to a public place and starts sharing their faith, with somebody else in a public setting or maybe a private property setting like a mall, they will say that you're trying to set up and establish church and state. You're trying to intermingle church and state. That's not what it is. 
The separation of church and state is, hey, look, there are certain things, like this tribute money, you should pay your taxes to the government. It's the government, it's their law, pay it. But you know what? God also has his due also. He also wants you to pay tithes. So you pay him as well. But here's the thing. You don't intermix the two. They are separate entities. That's what he's telling us. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Render unto God's what is God's. In other words, the government can't tell the church what to do. And the church should not get involved in political matters to try to sway things into the Christian favor that way. That's what separation of church and state is. No state-run churches and no politician or no Christians going into politics and having their other politic buddies come into the church and try to tell you how to vote. And hey, you know, since I taken this time out of my schedule to come up here and speak at your church, how about passing me a little bit of the offering money? Oh no? Are you sure you want this to pass in your favor then? See how things can get really, really muddied really quickly? Think about it in the opposite perspective, though. If there's a state-run church, a church that is owned and operated and ran by the government. You imagine what it would be like in COVID? We already saw how that started happening. You know what I love about it? This church building is completely and utterly paid for, rent-free. We owe no man anything here. So since we owe nobody, and this is completely bought and paid for, no one can come to this place and tell us we can't meet here because they don't have the authority to, as granted us by the First Amendment and, first and foremost, the Word of God. That's what separation of church and state really means. On your outline here, with pagan Rome starting to intermingle with Christianity and become this compromised much-marriage union, you start seeing Christian clergymen members being paid by the government. And again, there's no such thing as a free lunch. If the Christian clergymen, the pastors, were being paid by the government, guess what? That means that the government can come to you at any point in time and say, all right, now it's time for you to do your service for us. At this point in time, you start seeing clergymen serving on courts, playing key roles in federal government areas. And not only that, but problems and issues that were internal matters of the church are now the public affairs of the state for the government to get involved and to work out. Churches, church buildings started becoming built with state-run funds. It can be a problem. We need to keep it separate. By 321 A.D., Sunday was declared a day of rest. Somebody remind me, what's the Jewish word for rest? Sabbath. What day is the Sabbath? Saturday. 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 Yeah, you guys all right back there? Okay, that's good, that's good. By 324 A.D., next bullet point, all new converts... Check this out. We're given 20 pieces of gold and a white robe. Any of you guys get that when you got saved? Would it have affected your decision if that you knew that up front? Oh, and by the way, to convert to Christianity back then meant to be baptized in water. 
That was their definition, their state-ran definition of what it meant to convert. Is it any wonder that 12,000 people were baptized within the first year? You see, the result of this was little effort for missions or evangelism throughout the rest of the world. What's the point? If it becomes that easy to get saved, where all you have to do is get a dunk into some water and you get paid for it, and you have all these people lining up like they're getting a free phone or they're getting a free whatever from the government, sure, I'll become a Christian. Imagine what that does to the real genuine Bible believers. What's the point? Everybody's already a Christian. What's the point of going out and loving on them? What's the point of going out and actually preaching the gospel because they're already convinced in their minds that they're actually saved? So what do the genuine, Bible-believing, born-again Christians do? They compromise. They don't see the point in going out and winning lost souls to Christ because it's just becoming too hard to convince them that they're actually lost anymore. And so missions work and evangelism and discipleship all start taking a nosedive during this time. Because they're compromising. They're giving in. And mark it down, you guys. When you compromise with the world, when you start to give in yourself, you're going to see your personal commitment to God and the work take a nosedive as well. So what's really going on here? Christianity, quote-unquote, is now being flooded with all of these lost pagans and they're bringing their pagan ideas with them. Does this sound familiar? There's a story back in Genesis 11 where a man built a town called Babel. And this man, his name was Nimrod. And Nimrod literally means a mighty hunter before God, as in he's right in God's face. And he built this town called Babel. Babel. And he had all of these people who were like, you know what? We can do this. Look at, we're alive for so much longer. This is back when people lived like 900 years old. Think about the inventions that they had from living 900 years on this earth. Think about all the things, the devices that they had. Before or after the flood, when people were living that long, who knows if we had skyscrapers or not back then. Man living to 900 years, inventing all kinds of things, very much possible. They decide to build this mighty tower to get their works, to earn their way up to heaven by their own doing, by their own works. They all spoke one language. And what did God have to do? He came down and did what? confounded their language so that they couldn't understand each other. So they all left speaking different languages to all different parts of the world. Oh, but just one thing. Nimrod married a woman whose name is Semiramis. Actually... Rough estimate of the spelling. And Semiramis, as the story goes, had immaculately conceived a son 
and she claimed to have been a virgin. And the spiritual father was her husband, Nimrod, and she named this boy Tammuz. He was born of a virgin, immaculately conceived. This is Nimrod's wife, and this is his virgin-born son. Gee, that sounds familiar. Check it out. So that when God comes down and confounds the language of all these people at the Tower of Babel, they have this worship of this mother goddess who, for the first time ever, gave birth to a son immaculately. It, it, she's a virgin. Interesting. Where would Satan have got that idea in his head to counterfeit such a thing? What did God's promise in Genesis 3, verse 15? That through Eve's seed, a woman doesn't have a seed, through Eve's seed would come the Messiah and he would crush the serpent's head. Satan's no dummy. He heard that and he decided to counter what God was doing and counterfeit it in order to ultimately confound the work of God. Hey, you guys should build this tower with your own hands so that you can build your own way, make your own way up to heaven using your own good works apart from God. Oh, don't worry, we'll still have worship services. And here's who you can worship. Pagans are now flooding Christianity, but here's the thing. Just like in the Tower of Babel, they're taking their religious beliefs with them. Pagans were now becoming Christians, but they never forsook and left and repented of their pagan worship practices. They just married it and mingled it together with Christianity. That's what's happening. The church is now married to the world. Instead of persecution from without, like we saw the last two weeks, it is now seduction from within. Persecution without? Nope, didn't work. Church was growing. I will seduce them from within. I will get them to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit much fornication. Now you have the Council of Nicaea. We'll end here. Actually, we'll pick up with the Council of Nicaea next week because there's a lot there. Whew. I told you guys there's a lot to unpack here. This is the stuff that you start picking up in your history books at school. This is the stuff where you start seeing, oh, wait a second. They call Christi or Constantine the first Christian emperor. Check it out. Fact check me on it. See what your history book calls Constantine. The first Christian emperor of Rome. This is what he was known for. This is his definition of Christianity. And Bible believers, the people who believe the exact same thing you and I do now, being worn out and crushed from the persecution, seeing their family members get slaughtered in front of them, they decided to compromise. They decided to give in. They decided 
yeah, you know what? I fought a good fight. I've done the best I could. I'm tired of losing my family. I'm tired of being on the run for my life, so I'll compromise. Same thing that's happening today. There are pastors, there are Christians that are compromising on their beliefs, compromising on what they know they shouldn't do all the time. And I wonder if there's someone in here, if not multiple people in here, that are doing the exact same thing. You're one way here on Wednesdays and Sundays, and you're compromising the other days of the week when you're with your friends at school, or with your friends at work, or with people in your neighborhood, or with people in your extracurricular activities that you do. It's no different than them. God's called us to be so much more. He's called us to hold fast to His name and to not deny the faith. He's worthy of that. After everything He's done for us, everything He went through pouring out every drop of blood that He had in His Son on the cross for us, He's worth so much more. We need to hold the line we need to hold fast, and we dare not compromise. We go to the book, we hold fast to the form of sound words, like Paul told Timothy to do. And there is no surrender, there is no retreat, there is no compromise. Amen? Remember that when you go into school tomorrow, because you're going to be tested and you're going to be tried to give in in some form or another, whether it's sinful, whether it's doctrinal, or whether it's just... Forsaking what you believe generally about God in the Word. That's part one of Pergamos. More next week.